So please help me welcome Melissa Yancey. I'm scared of this feedback situation here. The microphone. This is, I don't like these. This okay. okay, is that good? Can you hear me? How about this? Hello? Are you there? Yes. <laughs> okay, wave your hand. Tori, can you hear me back there? Yes? Okay, okay. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I was just in Pittsburgh with my father uh, for the last week, and that was like having, um, I thought it was bad having one proud parent. Now I feel like I have many proud parents. It's There's nothing wrong with that. That's freaking me out a little bit. Nice. Um, it's, it's, different. Nice. it's different when it's strangers. You can like put on a persona. Um, you can't really fake it right now. So I'm glad I've enlisted Rachel. <laughs> To help me, I just read. Endeavor. I just read a lot, and we've been talking about books for a really long time. Um, sometimes they're hers, and sometimes they're not. So when she asked me if I would do this, I was very chuffed, and um, it's just nice to be talking about your book. So we're someone else's book. It's your book. We're going to talk a little bit, talk. and then I'm going to read. Um, a little bit, and then we're going to talk some more. I stole this format from Debbie, so if you don't like it, complaints department is over there, Debbie. Okay. So let's start. Okay. What do you want to talk about, Rachel? Well, the first thing I wanted to talk about. So um, you did a playlist for a website. Yes. Called Big Hearted Boy. Large Hearted Boy. Large. She has a large heart. <laughs> and one of the things that you, one of the songs that really kind of popped out at me was um, the song by Margot Gurian. Right? Yes. Okay. You have to Sunday, Sunday morning there you go. is the okay. song. So Margot Gurian is sort of, um, not sort of, she's, she's a songwriter, but I've always thought of her as sort of like a, um, a minor brill-building songwriter, you know, sort of a, not a lesser Carol King, but maybe not as well-known. <laughs> but so you're nodding in recognition, so Carol King, right? So those are sort of, those are wistful songs and like kind of happy, but there's always something kind of off about the song. So Sunday morning is the song where you said that's like there's always there's a little like creeping not menace under the song but she's talking about this really like oh it's Sunday morning it's like Sunday morning and it's like Sunday morning Sunday morning Sunday morning and you're sort of like that's Sunday morning is nice but the but the song doesn't really feel that way necessarily all the way through um, and Melissa said that was sort of something that she's going for a little bit something she explores with her writing yeah i mean i think that the the titles uh track in particular title track the title the story <laughs> um it definitely reflects that song and it's funny you call it lesser carol king because well, i but people i know think carol of myself king, I mean, as a lesser version no. of many writers i love um <laughs> No, it's a song that on the surface is very, very poppy. It's, you know, the, the lyrics I think that I referenced were, um, I'll put coffee on to brew, we can have a cup or two, and do what other people do on Sunday morning. And then she sings, Sunday, 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 but more like Rachel did. Sunday morning, Sunday, <laughs> just, I love, I love, I love Sunday. Sunday. Um, so it, it's a song that on the, you know, on the surface is very poppy, but you, you have the sense that she's trying to capture this time that is, is fleeting, and she's tortured by that. And also you get the sense that it's not very happy for these, it's not easy for these two individuals to be happy and to sort of play that part that other people do with such ease. Um, 
and I think that's something that that the book really reflects. Well, that sounds like a good jumping off point to me to maybe read a, an excerpt. There's actually story. a scene where people are drinking coffee. We didn't plan that. We did not plan that. We did not plan that. I'm going to start there. Can you really hear me back there? Because I feel like I'm being too quiet. Okay. I don't want to scream at you. Okay. I'm going to read a little bit from a story called Go Forth. His wife, Beverly, was on the mailing list for every conceivable kind of cause, cleft pallets and felled trees. When he managed to intercept the mail, he threw them all away. It says here, she said, that soldiers who would have died in all the previous wars because of their injuries are now living because of surgical advances. That's a good thing, he said. Well, she considered this. I don't think that's for me to say. She got up to refill his cup of coffee. It's a fact, so we have to do more to support them now. There was no point in arguing with her. He saw the flourish with which she signed her name on $25 checks, like she were passing legislation into law. The coffee was good that morning. By some talent he could not begin to contemplate, no matter how often she made it, the brew was different each time. When he'd remarked on this years ago, she had told him he could make the coffee, that she was confident it would be precisely the same each day, and that that sounded like a thrilling way to live. He was off guard then, when hidden amid the fundraising appeals, she produced another kind of letter. Look at this, she said. He could tell from the artificial brightness she'd staged this discovery. The letter inside announced the kidney reunion was in Chicago in five weeks' time. Who's being reunited, he said. We've never met any of these people. It's an expression. Would you rather they call it a union? That sounds like a marriage. Or is it the kidneys, he said, that are meant to be reunited with their former hosts? Former owners, he would have said, but that wasn't how doctors spoke of organs. He had merely been a 65-year host to his kidney, a kidney that now, like some foreign student on exchange, had been shipped off, only never to return. And someone else's kidney, Beverly called it Blanche, because all they knew was that it had come from Tennessee, <laughs> now resided in his wife. Their friends joked that if Beverly started sweetening her tea, he would know why. It reminded him of how certain people, uncomfortable with sex, would name their sexual parts, as though making things precious would strip them of their power. There'll be a group photo, she said, handing him the invitation, and they've approached People magazine. His wife loved the medical extremes of people, conjoined twins, progeria, shared psychosis, and now, as two links in a 60-person kidney transplant chain, they apparently qualified for those ranks. He could imagine the schmaltzy paying-it-forward headline, a sidebar with the altruistic donor who'd set the chain in motion. Do you think my kidney will remember me, he said. Beverly took off her reading glasses and stared at him. Sheldon. Don't you want to meet them? I do. I need to meet them. Oh, his wife. If only she were the kind of woman who roughed up the still moments of his Sundays with ill-timed requests for eggs or lady shaving cream or canned tuna. If only she had asked for small things all of the time in the way so many wives did and kept her reserves dangerously depleted. But she had used the word need so judiciously in the last 36 years. <laughs> Now, five weeks later, he and Beverly were lined up in numerical boarding order at the airport gate. They did not have assigned seats. What is the meaning of this, he asked her. Why did you choose this airline? 
It's more efficient. They've done studies. The planes run on schedule this way. You should have been Japanese, he said. I'll take that as a compliment, she said, nudging him as the line began to move. Inside the plane, it did not seem more efficient. There were passengers in window seats and aisle seats, sandwiching middle seats no one wanted to claim. In the back, too close to the lavatory, they found a row where they could both sit together. Beverly took the middle so that he could have the aisle. There were crumbs in his seat and a foil wrapper in the back pocket in front of him. He had watched the last set of passengers deplane when they arrived. Didn't there used to be a turnaround period when the planes were clean between flights? That was what accounted for the so-called efficiency in his view. Not some novel method of boarding, but cutting corners. The world had become so garish, Sheldon thought. It wasn't that he'd been a prude exactly, but the world had been slyer in his youth. Women's clothing had been suggestive. People smoke, spoke in euphemism. Now, people changed genders and exchanged vital organs and celebrated everything. <laughs> ben, one of his close friends from work, was a homosexual, and for most of their lives, it was unacknowledged at the office and at dinners when men brought their wives. Ben had a longtime partner, but no one had met him. And Sheldon had liked to imagine Ben's life like he would imagine India or Morocco, places of dirt and vibrant color both, a kind of beauty and ugliness he could not inhabit. But now, Ben and his partner came to parties in their Bermuda shorts and Sperry topsider loafers. <laughs> their sets of hairy legs crossed on the couch. The India Sheldon had imagined turned out to closely resemble Minneapolis. <laughs> He'd been disappointed by it all in the same way he had been on the soul cruise his wife had arranged for them in Mexico. Sometimes he thought he suffered from too much imagination. Once he had asked Ben, don't you miss it at times, being illicit? Sheldon was sure there was a kind of gay man who would have admitted he did. Like you'd miss getting kicked in the nuts, Ben had said. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. I love it. I love that. That makes me laugh. Um, how important is it to you that uh, that your readers can identify with the characters in in any way, wh whether they're they're likable or not likable or relatable? Or is that important to you at all? Oh, I've <laughs> I've gotten a lot of questions in the last few weeks about difficult characters. Yeah, <laughs> I don't find them. I don't find them difficult. I just, I, I really don't. Well, I love them all. So um, that's where I'm coming from. I don't know. Yes, it's important to me that, that people can relate to them at some level. Or maybe if they think they can't relate to them, like Sheldon, for example. You're, you're set up. You're set up to not hmm. relate to Sheldon. By the end of the story, I, I hope that the reader's feelings about both Beverly and Sheldon are much more complex than where they started. So I, I would like them to, to have some kind of discovery about a character that they may think is not someone right. they really want to meet in the airport. Right. <laughs> I mean, and I think these are, I think these are very funny stories. Like, they make me, they make me laugh like the big exploding laugh, and they give me sort of like the, <laughs> or the ones that, I mean, they really, they really, they're funny stories. It's all manipulation. And well, 
so that you'll cry. Right, well, again, so speaking more, so speaking more to what you said, with the playlist that you made for Large Hearted Boy, you said you were interested in exploring <clears throat> the line between uh, pathos and bathos. Um, why is that important? Because I'm really interested in stories that are sort of, they're, they're larger than life. Um, if someone told it to you and you tried to put it in a short story, it would, sound, it would sound ridiculous. Like the premise for a bad movie, so many of them are, they're based on real life. It's true. And sometimes you encounter these stories that really demand to be told, but if you try to tell them earnestly, mm-hmm. um, it, you'll fail. Um, or or you, the reader can't access the emotion. Um, because I was just in, I'm going to name drop. Because I was just in Pittsburgh with Richard Russo, who's the prize judge on my collection. Um, he, he, <laughs> you got to You got to do it. You got to do. He that. has this brilliant story called um, "The Horse Child," where it's a writing workshop, and this nun, this older nun, just shows up in the workshop uninvited, and the writing teacher feels like he can't really kick her out, and so she starts to submit these pieces of a memoir. And the memoir is like the worst life story that's ever happened to anyone. And but then at the end of each section. You know, the, the undergraduate writing students are saying, you know, well, I think if the father shows up again, then that would be an interesting <laughs> plot point. And there's all this satire between the sections of the nun story. But because of this frame, when you actually read the nun story and you can access, like, how horrible this woman's life was, it just moves you to tears. And, but you couldn't tell that, the, her story, earnestly. You couldn't tell it straight or you wouldn't experience the emotion in the same way. So I'm really interested in that. She's just toying with us. Yes. The whole time. But not as successfully as he does in that story. Give it time. Give it time. <laughs> You'll manipulate more successfully in your mind in time. I hope so. Um, so, how, as, as, so as a writer, how do you battle that? Because this is a tightrope. That is like... It is. And you yeah. never... You, there are moments where, you know, you don't know if you're getting away with it until people read it. And then they say, like, huh, that was the worst ending ever. <laughs> or, or no one says anything about the ending. And then you're like, yes! Um, I got away with it. Right. So sometimes you don't know. If you really want to get real close to the line um, and you want to f- flirt with the maudlin, then yeah. y- until the reader decides, yeah, you pulled it off, y- you have no idea. So how do, your, do you think your characters are fighting that same sort of battle? Yeah, they are. They don't want to become, at least some of them, um, and I'll read a little bit from the title story later, but they don't want to become those people. Nobody does. You know, I've, I've, been to, um, I've been to some tables where it's like we're at a medical conference, and here's the rare pediatric disease table. <laughs> That's a thing. Okay, That's yes. a thing, you guys. It's like you compete for which disease is the most rare, and they all have these really convoluted names, so people have their marketing names for them, and they're like, we're baby Alzheimer's. No, we're baby ALS. I, I kid you not. That's depressing. It's depressing, and it, but if you're that parent who's dealing with that, you know, you want to know everything there is to know about your child and, and what they're going through, and yet you look around and you're like, oh my God, I don't, like this, I can't become this person. Hmm. I can't be one of these people. And I think that's something that, you know, anyone who's dealing with a, a child who's sick has to confront that issue. That's a scary issue. That's very scary. And that's another thing. So the things that are happening to people in these stories, um, for the most they part... They suck, yeah. Bad things are happening to them. They're not pleasant. 
They're not pleasant. There's little, you know, pockets of nice things. Um, you know, you were saying, you like the, uh, the, the sunlight that comes through the window and you just want to curl up in there. But even in that, she says that wasn't how it was. That's how it was in her memory, right, but it wasn't right. like that in real <laughs> right. life. But they're going for that. They're, they're going they're trying. for that they're in, trying. Yeah. in the midst of it. Um, so do you think that, do you think that these are happy stories? Do you think they, I don't think they need to be, but. I, I, I think they all, they all have a moment. I think I've entered, I've chosen to enter the story and exit the story in a moment that's a little bit more hopeful. I mean, there's nothing more depressing than hope. So in that sense, no, I mean. <laughs> so they are, they're happy, they are, they're happy stories. But happiness can be also be hope. I, I, <laughs> elsewhere in the playlist, <laughs> I kind of I, I talk about, um, I choose an Elliot Smith song for one of the other stories in the playlist. And I kind of talk about how his really sad songs actually aren't that sad because you're just wallowing in this really dark, kind of moody, atmospheric space. But the later Elliot Smith stuff, when he's in LA and he's trying to be happy. Um, and he's talking about the sunshine in Los Angeles. To me, that's like, those are the songs that really slay um, because they're the hopeful songs, which are infinitely more depressing than his depressing songs. So it's happy in the sense that that's happy. <laughs> right. So like new highs and low, essentially. <laughs> Finding new highs and low. Can we just put that on the back? Yes. Finding new highs and low. It's a good low. slogan. Um, in terms of something that uh, you said a lot of people have been asking about, and not to say I'm not not interested in this, but um, with medicine, with um, the things that you that you were writing about, this kind of world, um, were you surprised that you were able to find uh, inspiration in that world? Well, this is a good segue into the next story. Um, but yes, um, I think part of that is because I don't like being a patient myself. Um, it's, I mean, I don't, maybe some people do, um, but I don't. And um, yeah, I just, I guess I thought doctors were boring or something. I don't know what I thought. I wasn't interested in medicine at all or science. I had like a whole aversion <laughs> to science as a thing. Um, and even when I was writing about work, I see many former coworkers here and current. Um, I would write about like office drudgery. I didn't really write about the medicine so much. And then I had this experience with a fetal surgeon mm. and um, he totally blew my mind. And I realized like there are these doctors that are working at sort of the extremes. Um, I watched The Nick, the show The Nick. If any, have you seen The Nick? Okay, shout out to The Nick. So if you've seen it, the character of Thackeray, it's like until you've met your Thackeray, like you don't really get it. Um, so I think those extreme doctors that they kind of are like PIs in the PI genre in that they have like really troubled life stories. They're obsessive about their work um, and just like fascinating individuals. So I think that that's once I kind of got the, you know, the spark then that, that changed everything. And you saw everything differently. Yes. So I have a story about the fetal surgeon. Why don't you read the uh, I'll read a little bit from that story. Surgeon. And I will warn you that I like to read this story with a bad accent. <laughs> <laughs> There's no excuse for it. It's just something I do. <laughs> this story is called Consider This Case. This is the one day each year they come to him 
enshrouded in blankets and footed rompers, matching sets of pink plaids and blue stars, or t-shirts proudly declaring personal interests in trucks or ladybugs. Nowhere else do so many twins and triplets, all under the age of five, congregate en masse. Julian, stationed with a chair and a photographer, looks like a wasting Santa Claus. He scoops them up, one in each arm if they are small enough, to smile for the camera. The reunion is one of Julian's favorite days each year. The lawn between the hospital and the parking garage has been set up with rental tables and a tent, and a food truck serves burgers. Older children, now four and five, race around the perimeter with blades of grass stuck to their sweaty faces, waving their sticky popsicle fingers, exhibiting their dominion over this place, their right to be. He first encountered these children as fetuses. The same jokes get told. From him, I knew you when. From the parents of the triplet toddlers, did you have to save all of them? After lunch, the photographer sets up for the group photo, positioning Julian in the center of the crowd. She perches high on an A-frame ladder, directing the dozens of children. They are nearly in position when the telephone in his pocket vibrates. It's his sister Liv calling from London. She never calls just to talk to him. Everyone in his family has this uncanny ability to call at the worst possible moment. It's father, Liv whispers through the phone, as though their father hovers nearby. It's time. He can't be independent anymore. Why are you whispering, Julian mimics. I can barely hear you. All around him, hips bob, pacifiers are offered. A few toddlers are chased down at the fringe. I can feel his anger from across the Atlantic, she says. The photographer gesticulates like a conductor. He only has a couple of months, his sister says. It's not like a permanent situation. Life is not a permanent situation, Julian says. Liv is an actress currently on the West End. Their mother is long dead. Their father is still at home in Virginia, which makes Julian all the way in L.A. his nearest relative. He needs to be in hospice, Julian says. You could get a nurse to come to your house every day, and you have the space. He'll try to redecorate, he says. So what? The place could use a woman's touch. At the airport, Julian parks the car and goes to wait in the cordon-off area near the baggage claim. They don't let you come to the gate, is the first thing his father says. So much for welcomes. He is wearing a seersucker blazer and tan slacks and a tie with a tiny sailboat print. His loafers look brand new. His father looks around at the abundance of flesh, flip-flops, and bedazzled sweatsuits. It's like the apocalypse, as though they were looting and this was all they could find to wear. <laughs> it's the West Coast, Dad. It's something all right. He has brought only two bags, a matching leather set, and tells Julian he has sent his other belongings through the United Parcel Service. He has a lifelong aversion to acronyms and abbreviations. Perhaps his father will be impressed by the location of his house, if nothing else, Julian thinks. Some people are taken with Malibu. But the ocean view from Julian's living room might as well be of a cinder block wall for the impression it makes on his father. It's cold like a Rothko out there. <laughs> at dinner, Julian tries to remember ever having sat alone like this across from his father at a meal. He only remembers how hollow the house had felt in his mother's absence. Even though his father selected and arranged most of the decor, he never seemed to inhabit the house in the way Julian's mother did. Without her, none of them knew how to behave as family members. 
Like children, she had to keep reminding them to share, to set a good example for their siblings, to call on each other's birthdays. They talk of Washington. His father chronicles the first lady's fashion in great detail. A glimmer comes into his eye. Her style is classic, he tells Julian, but fresh and bold. He's particularly pleased with a recent mint shell paired with a coral pencil skirt. There have been missteps, too, he reports. He did not care for an ombre evening dress. It looked like she had been wading in mud, he says. He stares at his son as though he, too, will feel sufficiently worked up about ombre. You know, his father says, pushing himself back from the table and eyeing the open floor plan. Modernity is all about poverty. Cheap reproduction and delivery to the masses. Like that case study house the Eames has lived in? That house looked like a rabbit's warren. Julian knows it is not so much his taste that bothers his father, but his disinterest in taste, his failure to take a position. A warren has mounds and tunnels, Julian says. It hardly looks like a box. I was speaking metaphorically of the specks of junk everywhere and the terrible use of textile. Julian wants to laugh, but his father is deeply serious about the terrible use of textile. <laughs> How are you feeling, Julian asks. He begins to think his sister has tricked him, that his father has years more to live. Quite well. Physically, I mean. Aesthetically, I'm suffering at the moment. <laughs> Stop that. Okay. You didn't say my favorite line, though. You didn't say my favorite line. Go for it. What's your favorite line? When the father says that they... Somebody thinks that the father is gay, and he's not gay, and he says, he's deeply Southern. (laughs) That's usually where I end. When I do the longer reading, I stop right there. I like that line. Um, Something else I want to ask you about... Um, Thematically, there's also some elements that come with these really terrible things that are happening to people to varying degrees um, comes the balance of, of things the balance of the uh, personal and the professional and the expectations that come with that um, uh, the public and the private um, how important is balance to you as a writer in your stories um, can, it, can it help, can it hurt, can it mix things up, can it I don't do this stuff, so you have to tell me. Do you mean like in the characters' lives or structurally in the stories? Both. Um, okay, well, part one. Um, in the characters' lives, I mean, by, by virtue of the fact that these characters are sometimes physicians or they are beleaguered in some way or they're <laughs> dealing with sick relatives, I mean, they're not, they're not balanced. They're unable to maintain balance. So there's constantly that sense of them spinning. Um, I mean, I am someone who is always dropping one ball, always. So I think that that is reflected in the characters. And, the, and when I read the last section, you'll kind of see that um, immediately uh, in, the, <laughs> in the psychology of the character. Um, but in terms of the bal- uh, balance between sto- in, in story, I mean, I actually like, I like stories that are really unruly. And I have a tendency to write unruly stories that I have, I have tamed. I have whipped them hard mm-hmm. to, to find Bend some... them to your will. Yes, to find this form. But I think there is a line that you can cross where they become too symmetrical 
too pretty. And I like to kind of actually have, I, I love stories that have that errant hair that's mm -hmm. kind of sticking up. I don't know if I get there in all these stories. There's a difference between balance and dynamic balance. And that's, you have to read the next book to get that. Because um, <laughs> I think that's something that like someone like Monroe does really well and sure. that's kind of what I, I, I love that dynamic balance. And you balance. picked a medium that makes that very challenging. Yes. Did you do that on purpose? No. Well, just know, like, you know, like your novel. I don't know. <laughs> Short stories are really, really hard to they tell. They are. They're hard they are. to do well. It's you true. have to do a lot in a very short period of time. It's unforgiving, as people will say. Yes. It's true. Um, and but I think it's unforgiving. People will tell you a story has to be perfect, where a novel can be, you know, a hot mess as long as you're like absorbed in the world of the novel. But if a story is actually perfect, then it's imperfect. It's got to be a little, it has to have a little, just a little roughed up a little edge. Thing. Something has to not quite fit. You have to one, and I, people do it different ways. Like, what's the Coco Chanel quote about, you know, when you leave the house, like, take off one accessory? Yeah, yeah. So my strategy is put one more accessory on. Right. <laughs> That's my fictional strategy. Is like, it's add. Not less is more. No, it's more add in another element. More is more. As you know, one of my favorite stories is Bobcat. Yes. By Rebecca Lee. So, I mean, what the hell is that story about? It's about a dinner party and infidelity and a bunch of other things. But what makes the story? The bobcat. Mm -hmm. The stupid bobcat. Like, what is that doing, the, what is that doing in the story? The errant part. You've got to have the bobcat. It's a little errant hair part. Yeah, the bobcat is the hair. Yeah. And you, you have to have it, I think. That's what makes it. It's perfect because it makes no sense. So <laughs> Okay. So, so it doesn't have to make sense. Nothing has to make sense. It has to make sense on a level that you can't explain. If you can reduce it, if you can, you know, Afra, you know, if you can say this is story is about this, then it's then why write the story? You know, I mean, it 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 makes sense in a way that you cannot put together. You have to say, read Bobcat, go read Bobcat, and then you understand. Know what I'm talking yes, about. but if I try to explain it, I cannot explain it. So that's how you know it's working. Okay, that that makes sense to me. Is that an acceptable answer? That's an acceptable answer. Okay. Um, so again, as somebody who doesn't, who doesn't, uh, I don't write uh, books or short stories, like. But you like read more than I have, for sure. I don't, I don't know if that's true, but um, for for me, I can count the number of books that I have abandoned reading, like on one hand. I, I can. So that do the opposite, right? So that's what I was going to say. So, so because because you're and, and again, I, I don't I don't read as uh, as a writer. You know, is it difficult mm. for you to uh, when you're reading? You know, there's been times where I've you know you've been like, give me a book. I need to read this kind of book. I need something where I can do this, and I give it to you, and you're like, I don't want to read that. I'm like, well, how about this? This is a really good book, and I really like this about it, and you might like this. She's like, I don't want to read that. I was like, okay. Um, but as a, as a writer, I mean, like, you've also said sometimes you don't want to read certain things that are going to kind of mess with your mojo. Yeah. Like, you're in, you're in the zone on something, and you don't want to read something that's going to take you out of that. Mm -hmm. um, so is, is it hard for you or easy for you? Clearly, it's easy for you to abandon a book where you're like, this sucks. I'm not reading this anymore. Um, where I feel like some sort of obligation to, to the book. Mm -hmm. I've picked it up, I will read this book. Um, but how, how does that work with, with stories? You know, when do you, when do you know, like, is it, is it the same sort of thing, like you have people read it and someone's like, you know, 
you got to put that one down. <laughs> or do or do people, you know, or, or is it like does it work? Does it work like that? Are there things where where you it's hard for you to to not not I don't remember say abandon a story because you can always revisit it and come back and life experiences change you and I don't have time. I don't have time to abandon any stories is a problem. Like okay. so, you know, I think the more I write, the more I try to be I have no time. So try to be, I try to be smart about my choices and I try to dump those, like, you know how people are just, you know, swipe, swipe, like I'm not even mm-hmm. giving you a first date. That's what's going on in my mind. So until it's like, oh, no, no, I think you're the one, then maybe I'll dabble mm-hmm. in that story. But I, because the time is so limited, I, at this point, and it, that bothers me because then you, you can't explore enough and then you can't fail enough and, you know, failure is a really important part of the process. You should, be, discard, you should be discarding a lot. And I don't feel like I, I only, you know, say, okay, this one's going to be a good one. And I, mm. I let them percolate for a long time before I'm like, okay, this one demands to be written. But I think that's more a matter of me trying to be efficient and mm. forcing efficiency into the process. And that's how I deal with my lack of time. <laughs> I, I, w- I wouldn't recommend it as like a writing <laughs> technique. Yeah. Because you should. You should mess around a lot and fail a lot. Yeah. And I don't, I don't give myself enough permission probably to, to do that. Well, you should work on that. I should. And just oh, work I- on that. You could just work on that. Thanks. Um, let's, let's hear something from the, from the title one. From, okay. From, from Dog Years. All right. So this is, is going to be the last uh, story that I read. Um, and yes, I think you'll see that for those of you who know me and know my inability to like respond to an email or things like that, it's because <laughs> this, this is what's happening. This is the story. It's called Dog Years. Or as someone told me, Hot Dog. That's what they thought. They, they wanted to buy my book and they couldn't remember what the title was. And they're like, hot dog. <laughs> so that's my new working title. Hot dog. <laughs> the Berger family is in a big box store, one they have driven several miles out of their West LA neighborhood to find. And the cart is piled so high, Ellen has finally conceded to getting another. With their speed through the aisles and the ziggurat of toilet paper, tissue, and toothpaste now cresting over the lip, the scene is suggestive of an apocalypse. Apocalypse again. Or the late great game show, Supermarket Sweep. It is odd, Ellen thinks, that the possibility of knocking rows of pure maple syrup, wrapped hams, and giant wedges of Parmesan into a cart to compete for the highest sales total ever sounded like a good time. Was it wish fulfillment for the thrifty? This one chance to buy only the most expensive, if arguably unglamorous, items? Or was it the hope that all those hours spent in actual grocery stores were training days? That there would be a moment when all of that wasted time would find meaning? They are near the end of this trip, but have come to their customary paralysis at the cereal aisle. Ellen has been arguing for the regular Cheerios, which are on sale for $2.28 for an 18-ounce box. But her younger son, Zach, prefers the peanut butter ones, which are $3.68 for a 12.25-ounce box. They have a rule about cereal in their house. No more than $2.50 per box, even for the smallest size. $2 is better, but they've never bothered to adjust for inflation. Her eyes keep drifting across the aisle to a display of melamine plates printed with blue anchors and sand-colored starfish. Summer is almost here. If she had those plates, they could have people over. And she could serve, what is the least troublesome thing she could serve? (laughs) Prosecco, maybe, and some decent beer. They could do it if they make it easy enough. 
She begins to wander away from the aisle toward the display of plates and little votive holders wrapped in beachy rope, even though she promised herself on the way to the store, no melamine, no duvet covers, no scented candles, and when she leans over to look at the price, she sees the red tag instead of the white, the color that would normally give her a hit of pleasure until she realizes that the plates are on sale because it is the end of summer, not the beginning. She knows that, of course. How can she not know that? But for a moment, it still seemed like there was time for summer. Her husband, Gordy, calls her back to the cereal. Zach's legs are getting tired, and Tyler, their 16-year-old, will be late for his guitar lesson. There is still no agreement about the Cheerios. They have considered other options, become nostalgic for Raisin Nut Bran, which has not been on sale for many years. Just get what you want, she says, less magnanimous than tired. But at moments like this, she can't help but think, Zach will live a short life, and you are going to deny him peanut butter Cheerios? But it's the principle of the thing, of living a normal life that includes grocery thrift. I'm still getting these, Ellen says, balancing the box of plain Cheerios on top of the cart. It will bring the per box average down at least. (laughs) This is not going in the movie montage, Gordy says. Ellen is a molecular geneticist. Gordy is a clinical geneticist. Their son, Zach, has Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, a genetic disorder. In the movie version of their lives, scientists scribble on whiteboards while kids in wheelchairs pull wheelies and give high fives. Two scientists born to find a cure, racing against the clock to save their own son. Ellen likes the moment in a movie trailer when the screen fades to black and the tinkling of piano over which the dramatic problem has been laid bursts open into chorus and someone driving down a country road in a convertible throws her hands up in the summer air. Where is my convertible? She asks Gordy. Sorry, let me skip ahead here. It is Zach's birthday. He is turning nine. This year, he has not requested a trip to Magic Mountain or the Safari Park, but a backyard party with friends. Ellen's job has been to select the cake. It is the space shuttle Endeavor in patriotic hues. The last year, Zach may like something like this. As a joke, Tyler has bought the fat-numbered candles for 36, since Zach argues that because of his short life, his age should be treated like dog years. He gives himself four years for every one and shouts out, dog years, when they tell him he isn't old enough to do something. (laughs) Ellen opens Sauvignon Blanc and the women congregate in the kitchen, drinking, while they watch the men outside on the grill. The women like to mourn at birthday parties, and the men just want to relax. She remembers when Tyler was growing up, how they would sit around and groan that their boys weren't little boys anymore. It was bittersweet, a feeling that had felt complex then, But now that she has added another dimension, a child whose health degenerates each year, the old feeling is so flat, so easy. Gordy is such a great guy, her neighbor says, as they watch Gordy scrape the grill and hold court with the other men. Rosie has lived down the street for years. She knew them before they were these people. Is he? Ellen asks, sipping her wine. She can't afford to get drunk exactly, but she'd like to feel the feeling that butts up right against it. (laughs) He is a great guy, but she is bothered by how often people remind her of this. The implied commentary about equivalence. 
He is more exuberant than she, it is true. He is still trim, and his thick beard masks the age on his face. She looks tired, and by virtue of the expectations placed only on women, more unkempt, and therefore less happy. But there might be something else she fears people can see manifested in their physical forms, that inside, they're each telling themselves a different story, something they do not talk about or always talk around. When did you get that, another neighbor asks, pointing to the electric chairlift that's been installed on the stairs. A few months ago, Ellen says, we wanted to get Zach used to the idea of having it there, so it's not a big deal. While he can still walk, one of the other non-Duchenne mothers says, doesn't that feel defeatist? It'll be worse to put it in after the first time he can't make it up the stairs, Ellen says. How did he take it, Rosie asks. Not well. He can't imagine he'll ever need that. I get it, says Lena. She pours herself a glass of the wine. He won't have to admit it this way. He can just use it when he's ready. She turns to the other women. You can't imagine how hard it is for them to admit they can't do something they could do the week before, she says. They're boys. Oh, yes, Rosie says, boys and men. That's why the crown molding in my living room is hung upside down. And why the water knobs on my sink are reversed, the other neighbor says. <laughs> there is always someone who makes the conversation light again. Ellen has a sudden urge to take them down as far as this well goes, to squeeze the wine glass in her hand until it breaks. But she does not do that. It is her job to quip. Without that, no one will follow. She thinks about the perfect days. How many were there? 500? and how she hadn't known then they were perfect. She tries to remember when she knew something was wrong with Zach, but there had been no singular moment. She remembers those early days now through the scrim of memory, stitched together moments of Zach, milk drunk, and she in a kind of blissed out exhaustion. That's what having an infant means in her memory, basking in a warm corner like a house cat, when it was not anything like that. And she knows that these days now, while Zach can still walk, will be the perfect days for her future self. She will not remember the grant applications and the broken garbage disposal and the flesh that is folding over her waistband. And yet knowing this makes almost no difference at all. I wanted to just end on a depressing note. Right. Way to keep it light. Way to keep it light. Well, I think we should open it up to any audience questions. If anyone's got anything pressing, they have to ask. Anything embarrassing they want to ask? My stepmother had a question that is kind of embarrassing. Wow. A question from afar. Well, she, she, would, she wanted to come tonight. It's, not, it's, it's nothing to do with... I, I showed her this. I was okay. like, and she goes, does she have any say in the picture on the front? <laughs> Do you have any say in the design? Yes. Does that mean Catherine didn't like the picture? No, she liked it. Okay. She's just like one of those things. She's like, I've never had a chance to ask someone who has written, you know, yes, a published book. Yes, but you often do not. You often do not, but yes, I did. And I, I sent the poor cover designer, um, oh, like maybe 15 cover, different mm-hmm. images, and then there was a whole rationale of like, if we want to play up these themes in the book, you might select this cover. Um, so I had a bunch of options, but this was my, my top pick what I wanted and I think it's good I didn't want a dog lest you think the book is about dogs and then be really disappointed when you read the book um 
And it's, it's an alarm clock. Some people don't know what it is, but it's an alarm clock that's blown up. And I think you can tell from the, the excerpt I just read <laughs> why that would be an appropriate image for the book. She just asked. Yeah, you have an answer. Yeah, she can tell her. Anyone, anyone. Yes. To decide which health areas to concentrate on. Like, how did you make a variety of them? Yeah, um, just the ones that were the most extreme, I think, where they're just some, like, the kidney chain. I mean, that's crazy. There's six, like, 60-person transplant chain. Like, that just seems I so... Didn't, I didn't know what that was. I, like, reading the story, I was like, when am I going to figure out what this is? Yeah, it's but this it, thing I don't know. I know that's a, one of the challenges of dealing with the science is how you're going to handle the ex, some of the exposition, um, you know, in the in these stories. But yeah, instead of just like I will donate my kidney or we'll just do a swap, if there's an altruistic donor that has no intended recipient, it's like I want to give one to you, but I'm not compatible with you. Um, so I can give it to someone else on the chain who needs it, and then they've got a brother that also wants to. Mm. The, so it goes on and on. It could be, you know siblings, coworkers, all these people on the chain, they all want to give to their loved one, but they're not compatible with their loved one. So there's this crazy algorithm. I don't get into the algorithm, <laughs> sorry, but it's a crazy algorithm, you know, that does all these matches, but you have to have that altruistic donor to set off the, the whole chain. So I don't know, just hear this crazy stuff all day long. So, you know, makes you want to, you worked in pediatrics, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> um, so it just makes it, it makes you want to write about it. So quiet compared to the undergraduates I talked to last week. They were like slumped in their seats, but then they can't, I know. What else is there to say that I haven't already said? Okay, if there's no other questions, we will we'll sign some books. Oh, Lou. What's the lifespan of these stories? I mean, what? Is the earliest story? Oh. I shudder to think. Um, no, most of these stories have been written in the last five years, but they're the the last one is really, really old, and I'm. It fits with the, thematically with the other stories, but the last one is fifteen years old. But most of them are within the last five years. I don't know why that makes me cry. Lots of not failed novels were written. <laughs> <laughs> As these stories were being written. These are the survivors. <laughs> Shahan, yes. Uh, what, what are some of the annoying questions you've gotten previously? Not included? Not included? Someone asked me if I'd ever written a... Well, you might have to cover some ears for this. I'm seeing Hadley over there. Someone <laughs> asked me if I ever wrote a story where someone had... <clears throat> Relations where a woman had relations with a dog, <laughs> and and she said something like, "You know why I'm asking?" Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, D- "Do I?" <laughs> Is that the same one that asked if it was called hot dog? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> it's like I don't I don't know what she means. I mean, there's a story. There is a story in the collection with a dying dog, and a woman who kind of uses her sexuality in an inappropriate way. But those two stories don't <laughs> intersect in that way. So I'm not sure where she was going with that. That was probably the weirdest. That's, that's weird. Yeah. Mm-mm. But yeah, the other stories are like normal, normal stuff. 
people ask you. Nothing like super strange. I'm not bored. Like I, you know, I've n- I haven't been doing this for that long. Ask me in like a week. <laughs> They'll say every question I've heard before. Okay. Thank you. Let's sign some books. Thank you for coming on a Monday. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.